time, and so stick around for that, and it'll be a great blessing. I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 9. One of the curses of the internet is dating websites. Amen. Let me go on record and say, if you are on a dating website, you are out of your mind. Let me just say that right off the bat. Amen. Say, well, Pastor Ruby, it's ChristianSingles.com. It is Christians out of their mind, singles.com. Amen. That is not the way courtship works. One of the most popular is one called eHarmony.com. And the man who started near Clark Warren used to be a Christian uh, marriage counselor, and I, I, I don't know for the life of me how he justifies what he's doing. But I read something really interesting about eHarmony.com. For the record, I've never been nor ever planned on going to these sites. But according to the Wall Street Journal, that when you go to eHarmony.com and you start filling in all the information, they actually have software designed to weed out applicants who try to paint too rosy a picture of themselves. So apparently that while you're going through there, they have some questions that they ask you, 19 of them, according to the article. And what they're doing here is they're trying to find out if you are saying you're 6'2 when you're really 4'11. And when you say you look like Antonio Banderas, you actually look like Pee Wee Herman. And so they're, 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 they, they have this stuff and, and what they're doing is they know human nature. And that human nature likes to pretend then that they are better than they really are. That there's something inside of us that when we fill out a profile of ourselves, wants to paint a rosy picture. And apparently this is the, uh, the bane of these sites is that people uh, uh, pretend to make more money than they do, to have more education than they have, to, uh, to have less weight than they do, and on and on and on. But the issue to this morning is it's not just true when it comes to dating sites. There's an even more dangerous place to have a wrong view of yourself. And that, when it, is, that is when it comes to eternity. And how you see yourself versus who you really are. I want to preach a sermon this morning called Self-Righteous. I want to preach this morning on the subject of self-righteousness and having a wrong view of who you are. Deuteronomy 9, beginning in verse 1. Moses is speaking to the people. Remember, Deuteronomy is, is a farewell sermon. It's a long one. And, and this is at the end of Moses' 40-year uh, uh, leadership in the wilderness. Moses knows he's going to, be, uh, he's going to die and he says these words in verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go into possess, dispossessed nations greater and mightier than yourself. Cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, descendants of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore understand today... That the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said to you. Verse 4. 
Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast him out before you, saying, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Father, I pray this morning for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Oh God, save us from the leaven of self-righteousness. Cause every man, every woman here to examine their own heart. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen. Now, I want to begin... And I want to talk about self-righteousness. Now, let's capture what's happening in this passage of Scripture. The Jews are now ready to make their way into the promised land. Uh, this is finally coming to pass after uh, 40 years in the wilderness. Um, and as they're coming into the land, God begins to speak to these people. Um, and he stresses to them the words, Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess uh, the land. You know, it's interesting that God was concerned uh, how the people viewed his favor and blessing uh, upon their life. They are about to see incredible miracles. Uh, all you have to do is read the early parts of the book of Joshua. They're going to see the walls of Jericho fall. They're going to see hailstones come out of the sky and kill their enemy while they're fighting them. They're going to see the mighty Jordan River part uh, and they're going to walk over on dry ground. Um, and God is concerned that after all the miracles God give, gives them, uh, that somehow they'll begin to think that these blessings uh, are the result of their own obedience, their own faith, uh, and their own hard work. That somehow they would interpret all of this uh, not giving credit to God, uh, but begin to tell themselves that it was human dynamics that have brought this to pass. That somehow it was my right choices, my right doing uh, that has made all of these uh, things happen. Now the application is obvious this morning because we are a blessed people. Can you say amen? God has blessed you. There are people here. You have money today. You have a home. You have a wife. You have a mind, amen. You might be used in ministry. God has blessed you and we thank God for that. But the same temptation, beloved, uh, is available for every one of us uh, that we can now look at our lives, look at our children, uh, look at our jobs, uh, look at our church and somehow say, uh, this is happening because of my righteousness. See, we have a tendency towards self-righteousness. This is a very real feature in human nature to pat ourselves on the back, to take credit for what God has done. It's interesting that he said, do not think in your heart. You know what that means? It means we never would admit this. 
We would never say this out loud. We wouldn't walk around and say, oh, this is because of me or this is because I'm righteous or I'm unright. Oh, no, no. We are masters at feigning humility. Amen. We are very, very good at, at acting humble uh, and pretending. Uh, you know, when someone tries to uh, offer some sort of uh, uh, a praise, no, 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 no. Say that again. What did you say? And, uh, you know, that's why people love to go online and see if anybody liked their pictures. Because the reality, beloved, is that people, uh, you know, we, we, we pretend, oh, no, no, but God said the problem isn't out here. The problem's in your heart. It's how you look at yourself. It's how you really perceive things. By definition, self-righteousness means to be confident of one's, confident of one's own righteousness, especially when smugly moralistic and intolerant of the opinions and behaviors of others. Having or showing an exaggerated awareness of one's own virtuousness. All through God's word, you can locate the self-righteous. And it's interesting in this little litany that I'm going to read you right now, of Bible characters that were self-righteous, every one of them found themselves opposing God. Every one of these people, when you consider that when they embraced self-righteousness or when they thought, I'm good, or because of my righteousness, good things happen to me, they always found themselves uh, Opposing what God's trying to do. You can go all the way back to Cain and Abel. And the Bible says that when it was time to worship, Abel brought a blood sacrifice. That Abel had an understanding that blood and sacrifice must be made in order to appease a sinful man. And his brother Cain, the Bible says, brought the fruit of the ground. He brought to God his own labors the result of his own hard work and the bible says god had respect to abel's blood offering and rejected cain's offering of his own works and cain became angry and we all know who cain is this morning we know that he's the bible fugitive he's the first murderer in the bible all because he thought he could bring to god his own good works we read about Saul, King Saul, who would blatantly disobey the word of God, half obey the word of God, and yet would say the words, I have obeyed the commandment of the Lord. And then when he was confronted about his wrongdoing, would say, well, okay, I may not have done it all, but I did it with the intent to worship God. That in this man's mind, uh, he saw even his blatant disobedience as some sort of rationale for right doing uh, his way. Uh, and beloved, there are many people, uh, you are living in sin, you're doing your own thing, and yet I'm, doing, I'm obeying God. I'm right. Well, okay, maybe I didn't do it all, but, but I did it just to worship him. We know that King Saul ended killing himself. The Pharisees. The Bible says who were self-righteous, who uh, uh, walked around showing outward piety and how they dressed and how they acted. Uh, they were spiritual bullies uh, who intimidated everybody else around them. They were uh, those who mastered at finding flaws, critics. Jesus said you, you uh, strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. These are the kind of people that that were very legalistic and uh, they would find little finer points of the law 
and then they would attack people uh, for these little things. And yet in their own life were massive uh, areas of disobedience and rebellion. Uh, and he said, you strain a gnat and you swallow a camel. He said, you know, they were big time tea drinkers. Uh, and the idea that they would have these little, uh, these little filters and they could catch these little fleas uh, so it wouldn't get in their tea. And they would do that, uh, but yet they would swallow a camel. And Jesus is exaggerating this idea that you don't get it. You are so good at pointing out the, the finer failings of other people uh, and you tolerate in your own life obvious issues of, of wrong and wrong attitudes. And they end up, of course, crucifying the Lord Jesus. And finally, there's the church at Laodicea in Revelations 3, the lukewarm church, who said, we are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And Jesus says, you don't know that you're poor blind and miserable. In other words, um, once again, self-righteousness. Uh, look what we are. We are a prosperous people. Uh, we, 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 we are blessed. We're a blessed church. Hey, we wouldn't have this church uh, if it wasn't for our, our, our right doing and all of our, and, and they're patting themselves on the back. Uh, and Jesus says, you don't even know where you really are. A man named Thomas Adams said, self-righteousness is the devil's masterpiece. Because it is so easy in the world of justice and morality, in the world of right and wrong, to twist it so that we don't see ourselves the way we should. Because of the world that we live in, traffic in as believers, is right and wrong, good and bad. Righteousness and, and so when we do right uh, and we do good and we make righteous decisions, thank God. But if we're not careful, we begin to say, yeah, that's why I'm blessed. That's why I'm blessed and that's why you're not. You know, if you were more like me, bro. Are you with me this morning, church? You know, and we begin to look and we view things this way. We begin to interpret them this way. You know what's crazy is if you read about these people who were, you know, God was concerned that they were self-righteous. They weren't very righteous if you read the book of Numbers. These folks had some serious issues. All kinds of things that had gone wrong and they weren't right. I mean, they, they may have made some right decisions. They were there. But the reality was that you can read the book of Numbers and you wonder why God let them into the promised land. You read about the rebellion and the immorality and the idolatry. Remember, we were, if you were in Sunday school, we were talking about uh, when they complained because they were upset that God gave them bread every morning. Uh, they just had to go out of their doorstep and collect it, and, and he gave them bread, and they started complaining, and they wanted meat, uh, and, and meat until uh, they got the meat, and, and, uh, and the whole thing turned into a disaster. These people... God says, and now you're going to come into the problem, and you're going to say, well, because of my righteousness, that's why we're blessed. You know what? This is not just a problem of the churchgoer. If you're sitting here this morning and you're a visitor, and you're like, yeah, man, this guy, you know, I'm telling you what, self-righteousness exists in every area of life. You ever, you ever, you ever know somebody who's messed up. You know, anybody here, you know, maybe they're a druggie or they're an alcoholic or they're, that's a problem, and you talk to them and they always talk about their friend, and you know what, I may be, but that dude's messed up. <laughs> I only did five years. That dude, man, he's messed up. 
All right, I may smoke a crack, but man, he does methamphetamine. That dude's really messed up. I'm not that bad. You can meet in every arena of society, beloved, because it's the human heart. You will find uh, people that are self-righteous. They don't even believe in God, but they're, they drive a Prius. And so, you know, you know, I get, how do you drive that wicked SUV, you sinner? Uh, you're destroying Mother Earth. May she strike you. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and there are people, I mean, their whole uh, uh, moralistic approach and their smugness uh, has to do with the fact that they are environmentally friendly. You have people that are, you know, animal rights activists. You can't just go get a dog over at PetSmart. I guess you can buy dogs at PetSmart, but, you know, you have to get it from the pound. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is fluffy, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and I, we, got him, we got him at the pound. <laughs> you know, every cat I have, I found on the back side of the road. But then you're going to have a lot of cats, man. But it's, it's, it's this thing inside of us. There are people who are, feel very justified and smug because they're pro-gay marriage, pro-abortion. And, and it makes them feel righteous. I'm standing up for civil rights. So, so uh, you know, and, and, and they're proud of this. Who would have ever thought we would live in a world where people would feel this way, would gain their sense of virtue by being pro-gay marriage and pro-abortion? <laughs> But, beloved, this works. You can meet them in, in nutrition. You're going to eat that? <laughs> Exercise. It's the human heart. It somehow looks at things and says, because of my righteousness. Let's talk about identifying the self-righteous heart. Let's take our own temperature this morning. Because, you know, it is hard to locate self-righteousness, you know, in ourselves. Most people would almost confess every other sin than this one. They would, they would cop to armed robbery before they admit, I'm self-righteous. And then they will begin to tell you about, oh, no, bro, I used to be really messed up. They will give you all their proper acknowledgments to their sinful life and all that stuff. But, and, and it's very, very hard to pin this down. Let me tell you what happens or where self-righteousness comes from. Self-righteousness is simply the product of using a different measuring stick. Okay, let me, let's go back to the Bible. In the Bible, God is a holy and righteous God. He is sinless. He is perfect. Okay. Human beings, us, are not. Help me out here. Say amen. We are imperfect. Measured against a holy and righteous God, we are lost, man. We are on our way to hell, every last one of us. Okay, you may be a, a better than the drug addict, but you are barely better than the drug addict. The truth is, beloved, that man is in this condition... And we're in this condition. And so long as we measure ourselves up to, against his holiness and his purity, we are clearly reminded of where we are. And any hope of getting into heaven is purely an act of his mercy. That's it. Nothing else. 
The very idea that you would be here this morning suggesting that you're a good person and therefore going to heaven is ludicrous because we're down here. How do people who are down here and he's up here uh, permit themselves to be self-righteous? I'll tell you why. Because they don't use that measuring stick. Their measuring stick is everybody around them. Everybody else down here. You don't compare yourself to a holy and pure God, but you compare yourself to everybody down here. You look around, and you begin to measure yourself against them, and then say, I'm doing pretty good. Now remember the story. They're about to go in and dispossess the inhabitants of this land, and as they're going in, their thinking is, we're good, they're bad, that's why we get the land instead of them. They're bad people, we're good people. And so they're going in, we're because of our righteousness, these people are wicked, and indeed they are, and they're being judged. But in their mind, somehow, it no longer was God having mercy on them. It was now, we're good, they're bad, that's why I'm blessed, and they're not. Because the measuring stick now became the other people. And we start, that's how we begin to develop this self-righteous attitude. We are better than them. We are holier than thou. I want to use an illustration from the Bible to help illustrate this this morning between righteousness and self-righteousness. Remember the parable where the Lord Jesus talks about the two men who go into the prayer meeting? And the one man is very religious, uh, and he prays, God, I thank thee that I am not as other man. I fast twice a week, give tithes of all. And he's just loaded with self-right. He's in prayer meeting. And all he does in prayer meeting is count up all the good things that he does. All he does is rehearsing all his finer points of obedience in his life. And there in the same prayer meeting is this guy who's just totally messed up, man. He's a publican, he's a tax collector, he's a traitor. And, and this guy goes into the same prayer meeting, throws himself um, on his face, and he can't even lift his head. He's so ashamed, he can't even physically lift his head towards heaven. And all he can say is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says these two guys are in the same prayer meeting, the same building, talking uh, to the same God. And he says one of those guys leaves justified and one of those guys leaves unjustified. And there they are side by side. And on balance, the self-righteous Pharisee has done more good things than the publican. And yet this dude, the hardcore sinner, gets right and the religious guy who fasts twice a week, does all the right things, leaves unjustified. Uh, and yet to the casual observer, they would have said, he's the good guy and he's the bad guy. Because self-righteousness and righteousness are always side by side. They are in the same building talking to the same God. Sometimes the self-righteous guy looks better than the unrighteous or the, the, the guy who gets right with God. And they exist. They coexist. That is what Jesus is saying. The classic example, what I believe are a picture of these two men in our story, in that parable. And they're found in the story of David and Joab. 
David and Joab basically spend their entire lives together and they are the exact picture this morning of how righteousness and self-righteousness coexist. They fight many of the same kingdom battles. But what made these men different isn't really so much what they did on the outside, but it's what they were on the inside. David is the righteous one. He is the one who's righteous. And I know some of you right there said, wait a minute. Righteous? The brother committed adultery. He had pride in his life. He wasn't a very responsible father. How dare you say David is righteous? See, that's self-righteousness talking. Because David is righteous because he was made righteous. Because for all of his failings, he knew how to repent, humble his heart, uh, go before God uh, and say, God, I am messed up. I am sorry, God, it is my fault. Uh, and God said, okay, uh, I am going to make you righteous. You will never get there on your own, stuff, but I'm going to make you righteous. Uh, and the Bible says he established David's throne forever. Not because he was perfect. Not that he didn't pay the price for the things that he did, beloved, uh, but somehow David understood, uh, I will never be right on my own, only you can make me right. And God heard that, and he made David righteous. Now, in the same palace is his general, Joab. Joab, on balance, was right on more issues than David was. When you read about Joab, he fought with David in glorious battles. He was a courageous general who helped David usher in his kingdom. There were times where David was wrong about some things, and, and Joab was right. When David was indulging his son Absalom, uh, Joab I saw him as a rebel and knew what he was before his father knew what he was. Uh, it was a, a, a Joab when David wanted to take a census uh, and uh, offend God by, by trusting in the size of his army that Joab said, don't do this. This is an act of pride. And David wouldn't listen. And so I'm sure if you were talking to Joab, Joab says, if David's righteous, then I'm super righteous. Because I can tell you all about David and Bathsheba. I can tell you about how David waffled with his son Absalom. I can tell you about that time when David wanted to have a census and I told him, bro, I told him, don't do it. And so in Joab's mind, I'm righteous. And if David is right with God, then I'm super right with God. And yet the Bible tells us differently. This man dies a miserable death. Because Joab was a man who was on the right side, but with the wrong heart. Just like this Pharisee, he was involved in kingdom activity. He was taking right moral stands. You know, let me just throw this in, in the, the highly charged political atmosphere that we are living in today. And there are people, you know, you say, you know, you're right, Pastor. You go get those uh, gay marriage. You go after abortion, and you can take moral stands, be on the right side of issues, and still have a wrong heart. And Joab, man, he's like, you know, I've fought in all the Lord's battles. But somehow Joab never examined his own heart. David would say, search me, O God, and know my ways. Know my thoughts. And if you find something wicked inside of me, 
Lead me in the way everlasting. Never once do we ever find Joab saying that. Never once this general, this soldier of the Lord, ever stopping and looking inside of his own heart. The best way to illustrate Joab is to look at who Joab killed. You want a test this morning of whether or not you're self-righteous. This is the test. How do you view people? How do you view people? Because a self-righteous person reveals their heart by how they view people. Not how you view God, but it's how you view others. Somebody said that self-righteous is more self than righteous. They are the most deceived that trust the most in themselves. In Joab's life, he committed three murders. Three different people who I believe represent what happens to a self-righteous heart. Let me touch on them real quickly. Number one, he murdered a man named Abner. Abner uh, used to fight as a general on the side of one particular battle and in, in one particular battle he killed Joab's brother in self-defense as a hell. Joab killed Abner out of revenge. He decided he was going to kill him and, and uh, when he had the opportunity the Bible says he came up to Abner pretending to be his friend, um, pulled him aside and then he killed him out of revenge because he had killed his brother. Never mind it was in Self-defense, and if you read the story, Abner kept telling Asahel, I don't want to have to kill you. I know your brother. I don't want to have to kill you. But Asahel kept going at him, and he finally killed him. And Joab says, I'm going to kill him. Let me say to you this morning something about self-righteous people. They are always looking for revenge. Self-righteous people always want their pound of flesh. In their world, they've always been wrong. They've always had violence done to them. And they always want what is coming to them. They want to get back. You ever talk to somebody that's on a, a mission of revenge, they cloak themselves in righteousness. I just want justice. That's all. And they will tell you what you think. You know, you say, well, why don't you forgive them? Well, you, what, you think it's okay what they did? No. That's why you have to forgive them. No, then they'll tell you again. And they'll tell you again, they'll tell you again. And they'll get upset and offended and, and because, because they want revenge. I read an interesting little quote in researching this sermon. We are unforgiving because we feel superior to others. I thought about that. What a profound statement. We are unforgiving because we feel superior to others. In other words... We don't want to be held to the same measuring stick that we hold other people to. The reason why I don't forgive is I'm not as bad as they are. Hey, you know, if, maybe if I was as bad as them, then I would have to forgive them, but I'm not as bad as them. Really now. And so in Joab's mind, I can kill this guy. He killed my brother. Second murder is the death of Absalom. He killed Absalom, David's son. Now, David's son was a rebel. 
And when he finally manifested his rebellion and tried to overthrow his father, uh, the Bible says that they went to war and King David gave clear instructions. He said, listen, I don't want you to kill Absalom. I want you to spare him. Somehow David was holding out hope that even after all this time that his son could get right. Now, before you say, oh, yeah, what a dumb father, aren't you glad our father in heaven felt that way about you? And David said, I want you to kill, I'm, I'm holding out hope, I'm still holding out hope, and, uh, and yes, I believe David was an indulgent father, I understand that, but you know, I can just imagine the father in the parable of the, good, uh, of the prodigal son standing there waiting for his son to come home and the older brother saying, Dad, why are you out here? Why don't you give up on this kid? He's a rebel. The Bible says that Absalom, now Absalom had long hair. He was so proud of his hair, they used to weigh his hair every, every year and stuff. And, and uh, when, when they were in battle and Absalom's side started losing, he jumped on his horse to get away. And as he's getting away, he went under his tree and his hair was so long. He must have had it in a perm or something. And it got caught in a branch. And it got stuck there. And so Absalom was hanging by his hair. And, uh, and while he's there hanging by his hair, they've captured him, uh, he's safe, um, David's men kind of gather around, they, they don't know what to do, you know, how to, you know and, and here comes the general, Joab, and he sees him, and everybody knows you're not supposed to kill him, uh, and Joab sees him and kills him. Because you can always tell a self-righteous person by how they deal with failure. You can always tell when somebody fails, messes up. Rather than holding out hope, I knew it. I, I saw that in that guy a long time ago. Yeah, I knew she was like that. Nobody would listen to me around here. When people fall, there's a good degree of piling on. And in Joab's mind, because when you're self-righteous and you measure people, somehow the more people fall, the somehow you're in your mind you're stepping on top of them, make you a little bit higher. Self-righteous people have no grace for failures. Self-righteous people think the father's too soft. I mean, in Joab's mind, get rid of this dude. You know, it is possible, beloved, even in church, to think that. Well, yeah, there's too soft on this guy. God, you know, if I was in charge. Are you with me, church? Okay, I need to hurry up. Third death is the death of Amasa, or Amasa, however you want to say it. And so Amasa is the man that was promoted past Joab. Joab was David's longtime general. And then what happens really is after he killed Abner, David got ticked at Joab, and he replaced him. And after he killed Absalom, he was promoted, and he promoted this guy Amasa above Joab. And so here's Joab, man. He's been around a long time, you know. He's paid his dues. And Amasa, who was a recent convert, if you will, 
David takes him, puts him above, and Joab can't handle that. He can't handle somebody else getting a position that he thought he deserved. That he paid the price for. And the Bible says that when they go to battle in the, in the fog of war, as you would call, Joab is seeking out this dude. And he runs into him and again, using the same trick, says, come here, my brother, and pulls him aside as a friend and then kills him, just blatantly shanks him. Amasa falls in the middle of the road. All the soldiers are running by in the middle of the battle and they see their general lying, bleeding in the middle of the road. And it got so bad, they had to order some guys to pick him up and carry him off the road because everybody stopped fighting. Because, because self-righteous people, man, are ultra competitive and they view other people and when somebody gets a promotion they didn't get they're like well why did he get that because in our minds I'm better I go on more outreaches I bet you I could beat him in Bible trivia all right bro Deuteronomy 4 verse 7 come on come on come on and, 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 they, and they, they live their whole life feeling, you know, just measuring and competing. And, and, and they're triangulating. And everything is just this little world where we're just down here and we're just comparing uh, and shooting uh, measurements with all the... And we don't even think about this holy, righteous God up here. We're just way down here, man, just sorting this thing out. You can identify self-righteousness and say, how do you respond when somebody else gets the position you thought you were going to get? Let me close quickly here and talk about true righteousness. So it's pretty simple. Number one, if you want to discover true righteousness, start measuring yourself next to a holy God. Quit measuring yourself with other people and say, you know what, I'm going to look up. Revelations 20 is an eye-opener, literally, because the Bible says that when you die, let me help you, when you die, it is not six feet under. It is not uh, a tunnel with a bright light and Elvis coming to meet you. That's what one woman claimed happened to her. The Bible says, and I saw the small and great stand before God. And he said, there was a great white throne. A great white throne, okay? If you were, you were wanted to catch imagery, great, meaning it was big, 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 big. White, meaning it was absolutely pure, so that anything not white would have stand out. Come on now. Any imperfection would be magnified next to absolute white. And it was a throne. That means it was a place of judgment. And it says when we die, that is what we're measured against. You're not going to be measured against your homies. You're not going to be measured against your Facebook friends. You are going to stand before a holy, pure, righteous God who is prepared to judge you now based on how you appear there. My advice to you is to consider that. And then do what all of us have done, fall flat on our face and say, oh God, only by your mercies am I getting into this place. 
nothing less. It doesn't matter that you only smoke weed on the weekend. You're going to have to stand before a holy, righteous God. And you're going to have to give an account of your life. See, the gospel story is powerful, beloved, because it's, it's a holy, righteous God becoming a sinless man, Jesus Christ, and going to a cross and dying for folks like us. I mean, here we are, we're, we're down here in this little pigsty called planet Earth, you know, thinking that we're not as dirty as the other pigs. And here's a holy, righteous God who becomes a man, lives a perfect life, and then allows himself to be thrown in the middle of that sty, where he's absolutely destroyed on the cross, just so that you and I could come back in relationship with him. That's the gospel. That's it, nothing else, beloved. Measure yourself against him, not your neighbor. Number two, be gracious with people. Change your measuring stick with people. Instead of looking at people or find a flaw so you can feel a little bit better about yourself. When somebody falls, say, there but for the grace of God go I. That that man is no worse than me or that woman is no worse than me. Here they are coming into the land, saying, we're replacing you because we're righteous and you're not. And God says, if you act out, I'll replace you too. And guess what? A few hundred years later, he replaced them. Don't think you're better than anybody. Christians aren't better. They are forgiven. Can you say amen? And beloved, if you and I are making it in, we're making it in by the skin of our teeth. We're making it in by the precious blood of Jesus Christ that humbles us and says, you know what, if God can save a, a filthy, rotten sinner like me, then he can help you too. And that's the gospel story. Do you think, oh yeah, you guys think you're better than me? Absolutely not. That's why we got saved, because we weren't better than you. But you're not better than us. And you need a savior too. I'll finish with this little poem. And then we'll pray. I was shocked, confused, bewildered as I entered heaven's door. Not by the beauty of it all, by the lights or its decor. But it was the folks in heaven who made me sputter and gasp. The thieves, the liars, the sinners, the alcoholics, the trash. There stood the kid from seventh grade who swiped my lunch money twice. Next to him was my old neighbor who never said anything nice. Her, who I always thought was rotting away in hell, was sitting pretty on cloud nine, looking incredibly well. I nudged Jesus, what's the deal? I would love to hear your take. How did all these sinners get up here? God must have made a mistake. Why is everyone so quiet and so somber? Give me a clue. Hush child, said Jesus, they're all in shock. No one thought they'd ever see you. Thank God for the grace of God. Can you say amen? Let's bow our heads. The leaven of self-righteousness can come into every one of us this morning. The truth is, it doesn't matter who you are and it does not matter what you've done or how bad you have been. 
when a man or woman comes to grips with their sinfulness, when they quit blaming and pointing fingers, when they quit comparing themselves with others, and be honest about the condition of their heart, they begin to realize that the God of heaven extended his mercy towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. He shed his blood that you could be forgiven, that your sins could be washed away. That's the gospel. Church is not a place where we come to impress people. We're not here to fool people and to think we have it all together. Church is a place where we say, oh God, we know we don't have it all together, but we know that you love us. And you know that you'll help us. And I come to you as a sinner. I might be a religious sinner. My parents might be Christians. I may have been a Christian once myself. But God, I come to you and I'm a sinner and I need your mercy. You know what the Bible says? He will have mercy on you. It says that the ear of heaven is open to the cry of the repentant heart. And while our heads are bowed, if you're here and say, Pastor Ruby... I need forgiveness this morning. I'm not right with God. I need his righteousness in my life. I don't want to come to God with the fruits that I've made for my life. Would you pray for me? I want to be born again. I want to admit my sin before God. I want to ask him to save me, forgive me, and change me into a new person. If that's you, while our heads are bowed, I want you just to raise your hand right now. By raising your hand, you're saying, I need prayer, Pastor. I'm not right with God. God bless you this morning. Thank you for that hand. Who else? Pastor, I'm not right with God. Would you pray for me? God bless you. Who else? With an uplifted hand, pray for me. I'm not right with God. All around this building, hands have gone up. There are others this morning. Thank you. I'm not right with God. Just slip it up high. Hold it there for a minute. I need prayer, Pastor. I need Jesus. I need to be right with God. God bless you. I want to be right with God. That's what matters. When I stand before God want the righteousness to be not anything that I've done, but what he's done for me on the cross. And today I surrender my pride. I surrender my uh, pretense. I want to be honest with God. Lift up your hand. Anybody else? Pray for me. God bless you. God bless you. Who else? Thank you. Maybe you're a backslider. Maybe you walked with God at one time, but you're backslidden. Would you respond? I'm backslidden, Pastor. Pray for me. God bless you. Thank you, young man. Who else? God bless you. I want every one of you that lifted your hand, I want you to lift your head and look at me. I want you to come. Come on. Young man, I want you to come. Don't be embarrassed. I want you to come right now. There in the back, I see your hands. Come on. This couple, get out of your seat. Every one of you, come on. These are coming. I need workers to come help us right here. Every one of these to meet them. We need some sisters to help us this morning. I need a sister right here to help us.